Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren. I'm Jessica. Welcome back to another exciting episode, Andy. <laughs> Hi, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> you're becoming a bit of a staple around here. Maybe you're one. Yeah. Maybe you're just the new co-podcaster. <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's it's been more and more frequent recently. Yeah, well, we're not complaining. Yeah, not happy to have I. you along. So we've got uh, an, a a bit of a different kind of show today. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bit of an advice column, a more you know kind of thing. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be good, I think. We had ourselves a poll on our social media, as we are wont to do, and the winning vote went to being a good GM. Mm-hmm. And being good in this particular instance, I think, means a couple of things. Mm-hmm. You you know, oh, man. I'm okay. We had ourselves a little incident before the podcast got started. Yes, uh, my foot has been lacerated by one of our animal podcasters yeah one of our animal companions had a, had herself a spook and now destroyed Ren's just, headphones destroyed my headphones my foot. her foot and uh she lost a bit of hair poor cat we're off so. to a great start yeah very auspicious right. beginning so might as well just go ahead and get right into it we're gonna go ahead and consult that codex you can ask me questions if you like i'm not sure why you'd want to but oh good Thank you. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the Codex. We've got some lovely selections for you this time around. We're going to start with one of our winners around here. And I think, mm-hmm. I don't know how if this is a question that we missed last episode, but it was posted on our 50th episode. But it was, but I didn't, we didn't answer it in the 51st, so oh, maybe it just came through late. But, yeah. Uh, He's already caught up with a couple extra questions. Our good friend Percival on the Green Running Forums. He's always busy. He, he is. is. He's always got something for us, and we love him for it. He's also been busy becoming one of our latest patrons. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Percival. We appreciate it. Uh, so, Percival's question is a, is a good one. And we, there was a bit of a discussion about it on the forums already, but we're here to add our two coppers. Parcival's question was, The most recent session I had, I ran had the PCs cast into an adventure in the Fade. I rewarded all but the mage a stat increase to magic, which they all grumbled about. I felt that such an increase would be overpowering to the mage, so I elected to grant him the status of being Fade-touched. Now, I haven't exactly decided what this entails. Certainly it would enable that PC to access the specialization of Spirit Healer much more easily. My question for the next podcast, then, is, what would you do? Grant a free level in the, ta- in the Spirit Magic Talent? Add plus one modifier to casting spells at the Spirit School. Should it also increase spell power? I want something useful, but not too overpowering. Many thanks. I honestly think that uh, giving a free talent level in Spirit Magic is way more powerful than uh, having an extra... Well, not way more powerful, but significantly overpowered as just a a freebie if the others are just getting a plus one to Magic. That's a lot. Um, I don't know if you meant that you're giving them all, like, a point towards magic, like mm-hmm. a, uh, 
What, what do we call those? I forget. Uh, an advancement? Yeah, an advancement. Because if your mage already has at least a five magic, then what you could do, which would not be supremely overpowering, would be to give your mage an advancement. And if your mage, you know, that means that their stat wouldn't go directly to six or whatever above. Mm-hmm. They would just be on their way, and it would sort of save them a level in boosting it. That said, if they're, you know, five, if they're a four or lower, I can see why you'd be a little bit skittish around giving them a boost to magic. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it would be completely game-breaking. I do think that giving them free uh, a free talent level in spirit magic would probably be difficult. I think the plus one modifier to casting spells isn't bad, though. One alternative might be to move it out of magic entirely. Obviously, the uh, the non-casters are kind of grumbling about that. Maybe change mm. it all globally to a plus one willpower. Yes, Ooh, that's not a bad I idea. like that idea. Everyone likes and isn't going to really overpower the mage, but maybe stave off uh, stave off possession a little more easily. Yeah, and it makes sense thematically because you know you need willpower in the fade to not be possessed by demons. Mm-hmm. Doesn't everyone like that? I love not being possessed by demons. That's my favorite thing to be. Um, I guess if the maybe if the spellcaster wanted something more specific, maybe like a once per day free reroll to cast a spirit spell. Hmm. Rerolls are definitely hard to come by, so that's not a that's not a bad way to go. Mm-hmm. One things I one thing I actually suggested on the forums was giving perhaps a and this depends on the, the mage's spell loadout, maybe giving them access to a, a penetrating-style stunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that's not as useful for electric or cold spells, but if they're they're more into fire or spells that don't penetrate armor, maybe they get access to a three-stunt-point uh, uh, three stunt that would let them turn a spell into a penetrating spell. Mm-hmm. That could be interesting, too. Um, because there is all uh, a... Stunt already for penetrating spell in the spell expertise talent. Um, maybe they got enough expertise from their trip to the fate, or maybe they, I don't know, like absorbed a, f- uh, a font of knowledge while they were going through. Maybe they have the spell expertise talent unlocked for them. I like that, but I would worry that, especially compared to the rewards that the others got, yeah. even a plus one willpower wouldn't wouldn't add up to all the options that spell expertise gives. You that are said, that's probably right. Hugely beneficial. Anything that's going to equate to a talent is going to be too much because it's basically a throwaway benefit for the other classes. So that's true. Might as well give the mage like a plus one to strength, unless they're a sword mage, and then I don't know. That's so bad. You know, if they went with a heavy blade. But, um, yeah, I think the one plus one to willpower is a nice solid way to go. Yeah, I agree. All right. Hope that answers your question, Parsifal. Thank you again, as always. We know you've got another question already waiting in the wings. We'll get to it next time, but thank you. Thank you very much. We've got plenty of other questions that we're going through today. Uh, the next two come from Mark Natris through our Facebook page. Thank you again. Uh, first question is, when does a failed climb check cause no progress, and when does it cause one to fall? Uh, this is a fair question, and I think that this is more of a GM fiat question because there's no real specific way that climbing works. In I mean, beyond the fact that if the GM calls for a climbing test, you roll a strength climbing check. But, so, it would depend on the encounter that you wanted to run. You could have it maybe that if the player uh, fails to make the test, that they just make no progress, or 
fail and roll a one on the dragon die, then they start to fall and that could maybe be have good. to try to catch themselves or. And I think it like depends that. on what they're climbing too. Like for mm-hmm. example, why does it? Why is it always Callion? It's always Callion. <laughs> but Callion was trying to scale the underside of an ice bridge, and was that, do that literally climbing icicle to icicle over a thousand foot drop and. A failed climb check would very much have meant a splattered callion. How did she survive that? Campaign? I told, I warned her many times. This, <laughs> if you do this, you will definitely get surprise on the folks who are on the other side. If you fail, you're going down. If you down. fail, you're going to die. <laughs> like no That's armor rating. Do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course she did, and she made it. <laughs> she made it somehow. Very barely. We were all biting our nails that day. It was that a was good rough. time. Though. That was a rough day. My hands are sweaty just thinking about that. That was really terrible. I, I think one good strategy with this sort of thing is to be very clear about what your intent is as the game master in terms of asking for that that test. So, mm-hmm. if you're asking them, okay, we're all climbing up the uh, climbing up the canyon wall. Everybody, roll uh, roll climb. We'll see how far you get. As opposed to, you are in the process of climbing, I need you to make a climb roll to to hold to the wall while something's attacking you. Ah, uh, yes. Or while rocks mm. are falling. That um, is a good clarification. And, and a lot of that, I think, comes in terms of description as a GM. If you're able to describe that scene and what's happening, your players will more readily be able to understand, okay... Am I going to make progress, or am I going to avoid falling here? What is the purpose of my? What is the purpose of this test? Yes, I like that. That's really good. Yeah, I hope I that answers your question, Mark. Those are, I think, those were all excellent. Well done, yeah, go team. One. Hurrah! Uh, next question from Mark is: If you put plate mail armor on an ogre, would it replace the seven armor rating from their tough hide, or add to it for a total of seventeen? I'm of a couple of minds on this. Uh, me, me too. Me too. Yeah. But go ahead, Andy. Rules as written, yeah, it would it would stack to my understanding. That said, if you're if you're as the GM going to do that to your player, you're in the property of what we call a dick move here, <laughs> <laughs> because you're you're literally putting your players into a situation where. I mean, just based on the the average rolls that you're going to get in in the age system, if someone's hitting 17 damage, you know they damn well better be, you know, 20th level by that point in one yeah. sword strike. Um, yeah, it's it's gonna be rough. Um, like sort of like Andy, I'm of the opinion. Like it could be read that you could stack them. I know that there have been rules in general where two similar bonuses will not stack with each other, so I could see an argument for the idea that armor bonuses cannot stack with each other. Like, armor rating doesn't stack with armor rating. But realistically, I could see it making sense. Yeah, I mean, one's coming from, like, the outer armor shell while the other's coming from the hide. But at a certain point, it just strains credulity as to why you would want to include this. Yeah, don't be a jerk. Don't be that yeah, are you really looking for a way to challenge those PCs? Because what you're going to get is rogues who are very happy because they have Pierce armor, mm-hmm. warriors who are frustrated because they don't, and mages who are a flip of a coin as to whether they have enough penetrating spells. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
That is what you will get. That is a tough time for every class in this encounter. Well, and if you give it armor mastery, oh, and then so even on penetrating damage, oh, it God. still gets half its armor. Like by the maker. This is this is just but the it, worst. But at that point, like if you really wanted to include that sort of um, that sort of challenge for your players, to me, this is where you build in that that three or four point stunt that is effectively, mm. I rip the armor off of the ogre because it's Ooh. just a big metal sheet because it's a big dumb dark spawn right. that doesn't have mm -hmm. good armor. So I my, do like that. So, so instead of dealing damage this turn, I'm going to literally rip the plate out of its armor and reduce its armor rating for the rest of the combat. I like that. It's a good idea. So yeah, maybe don't do that, but I think feasibly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, I we, we guess it can. I didn't say they couldn't. They said, said you shouldn't. shouldn't. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Just because you can doesn't mean it's a good idea. Exactly. Well, thank you, Mark. Anyway, we appreciate the question. Uh, next question comes from Drunkelgrog through our email. I still uh, love that name. It's yes, a great name. It's still great. I think it's the name of his character, and it's, it's a good <laughs> choice. Um, as a GM, how do you set target numbers as the player's level? Is there a temptation to make that level one commoner nearly impossible to sway for a silver tongue plus a silver tongue plus six bard? Um, I think it yeah. depends on the GM. It and uh, that last question is a very interesting one and kind of plays into our subject today. A little bit. The idea is like it, you know, that depends on the person. It, it do you have that temptation? Like, why do you have that temptation? Has your bard been being a jerk? You just want to do it because you want to show up the bard. Like, it, it really depends on. Well, the, the circumstances. Is there a reason that you would have a commoner that is impossible to sway for a bard? Maybe the bard is trying to seduce everything that moves, in which case, maybe you should go ahead and make one of the commoners impossible to sway. Like, you know, it really depends on the situation. It really does. But, yeah. yeah I, I, think it also, I think it also comes contextually in terms of as the campaign progresses, you're presumably going to be dealing with bigger and bigger players on the world stage. Mm -hmm. um, instead of, you know, being the, the hometown heroes, so to speak, you're probably going to be advancing to the point where you're involved in Orlesian and Ferelden politics and you're meeting, you know, King Alistair or Empress Selene or what have you. And their abilities are going to rise to match that of the, that of the players. So... At that point, convincing the one or two commoners maybe not uh, not so difficult anymore. It even becomes trivial. But mm -hmm. when you're at court trying to convince the dowager to throw your to uh, elevate your family to a noble house, that's a little more challenging. That <laughs> is sure. very true. So I mean, how do you set target numbers? It and it can also depend on what your characters can do. Uh, it's usually a good idea to keep, if not the original copies, uh, copies of the character sheets. Updated or copies. Updated copies. Or maybe some quick and dirty stuff, like the quick reference cards that I think should be, still be available in the core rulebook. You can print out a couple of them and write down the abilities that each of the characters have, which can give you a rough idea of generally the ballpark that they can roll into. Mm -hmm. It's not enough room to include like all their focuses and all the magic items they have, but it can be a good... like base level thing to look at and think, okay, when I look at this table and it says nigh impossible, could they still actually make it? 
if they've got like an eight in that ability, you know, not impossible. They've probably also invested in some focuses, or maybe have some magic items that are boosting it. So maybe throwing out that target number twenty-one is, in some cases, maybe not even enough, mm-hmm. as has been the case with a couple of the communication rules that I've had to stat I don't uh, know against <laughs> this particular mage right here. I don't know what. You're talking was about. like consistently rolling 20s to 25s in communication hey. tests. Oof. Hey, you know, some of us have to prep for the fact that we roll a lot of threes. <laughs> you definitely you definitely made it work for you. And, you know, your titles that make you give you like a plus three to talk to yep. your subjects and your oratory talent that lets you re-roll. It's, I mean, it's, you it just, worked you out very to, well. It depends on the person. It depends on the character and what they can do. So for someone like her, you'd probably need to uh, you'd have to have some high target numbers, but you also need to make sure that those target numbers make sense. They don't just come out of nowhere. Like I mean, and it it does make sense for someone like the plus six bard or the you know mage, some mage, some any mage. It could mm-hmm. be any mage. Uh, just somebody with a high communication set. It makes sense for like normal encounters. For like if they were trying to convince a common person about something, they probably would just kind of very close to auto succeed because they're good at it. Like that's just something that they have. The world shouldn't get harder in every aspect just because. Like you have to kind of make a balance between how to challenge the players and how to make it a believable world. Like. The same yeah. commoner that would take a 10 for someone else shouldn't suddenly be a 21 because the other person is better at it. Agreed. Context is everything here. For sure. Alright, well I think that's a pretty good answer. I think so. Yep. Alright, our next question comes from Michael Garrett through our email. Uh, hi. I had another question. Hi, hi Michael. How's it Hello. going? Hello. What happens to PCs if they die in the Fade? In the Dragon Age 2, if Fainriel does in the Fade, he becomes tranquil, but what about non-mages? Do they wake up, or are they open to possession, like a tenant leaving an apartment, or do they just die? I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, this is a, this is assuming that you've entered the Fade in the normal way, assume, yes. which is your body is still... There's um, Your body is still on the other side of the veil. That particular example that he is citing, I think, is also a very uh, specific kind of example, because it's one of the several times where the PCs are projected yeah. into the Fade. Mm-hmm. Their minds are thrown into there the Fade. There are very few times in history where your whole body goes into the Fade. Now, you, if uh, the ritual could potentially you know, be fatal, if maybe they don't have enough power to sustain it, or maybe the, the components were faulty, or maybe the mage wasn't quite powerful enough to get the incantation correct, which can add maybe a little extra danger for like a high-level adventure... But for the most part, how these usually run is that the characters are projected into the fade with uh, with their minds, you know, creating little mind projections for them that act the same way their bodies do, because that's how they see their bodies work. Mm-hmm. And usually, if they die in the fade, they usually wake up, that they come back out of the fade. Mm-hmm. That may not always have to be the case. It may be that the very particular ritual that you're using is a bit more dangerous than a safe ritual, or maybe the particular ritual you're using it comes from a different magical tradition that has different priorities. Well, and also, Dragon Age Origins seems to imply that, you you know, if you could have gotten out by just, you know, stabbing yourself in the chest, mm-hmm. you probably would have done that instead of going on this really long, ludicrous, circuitous yes. route out of the Fade. Like... 
it, it would seem to be implied in Origins that if you died in the Fade, you died in real life. Like, or if nothing else, your body continues to exist and to breathe and move and, you know, somebody else could come and inhabit it and you're not Who using knows? it. But your consciousness dies, then you kind of don't come back. That was the vibe I got from Origins. The sloth demon definitely gave me that vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I might take, uh, take a middle-of-the-road approach here. Killing PCs is massively inconvenient. That is a good point. <laughs> you spend so much time prepping and learning. Okay, well, how does this play? How does this character work? How does this? Uh, how do? How does that? How do they work in combat with the others? You know, I've built all these plot seeds as a GM, and to throw all that out the window, it aggravates your player and it aggravates yourself. So, if it's me, and I am not the good GM. I am the evil GM. <laughs> um, I see. As we will find out later. I oh take a different approach. I look at... I maybe start looking at rolling on that uh, that mage-only uh, spell failure table if, uh, to see if uh, possession starts happening. Well, maybe, possession is effectively character death. Yeah, well... If they turn into an abomination, yes. But at that point, it also can provide a neat role-playing opportunity to get, we could get a win, we could get a, a Justice Anders thing going on. Um, that That's the sort of thing that may, that not only will make their lives difficult for the future, gives you a ton of plot seeds to work with, and also makes that character someone that they're going to remember. That All is right. true. I like this point. Another thought would be, um, if you really wanted to avoid character death, is just straight up level loss. Like they wake up, but you strip. They've lost a part of themselves, so maybe they lose a level or two. That's it's rough. Rough, uh, but, but it's at least that dangerous. way you haven't killed them off, and there's a real consequence for failure. Real consequence, yeah. Loss aversion, I think, is is a thing, and I think we're starting to see a lot of games move away from that because it's rough stuff. How much does that suck? You still there? I'm still here. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, sorry, you patched out for a second. Okay. We didn't get to hear that last bit. Sorry. The um, premise being that uh, loss aversion has just become uh, such a such a major thing that it's uh, that a lot of games have kind of moved away from that. I I remember playing a three five Ravenloft game where my my good friend Lionel uh, was playing a ranger and I suck a, uh, I sicked a bunch of sturges on them. And Sturges. Oh, Sturges. When he leveled up, he lost hit points. Oh, no. <laughs> that sucks. Yes, I know. By rule, you always get one. But, uh, but yeah, he had a negative con mod when he leveled and rolled poorly. And he said, nope, this is what I rolled. I lost two hit points this level. Jeez. Well, uh, yeah. I think, like, if... The players are aware ahead of time that, like, hey, if you go in the fade and you die in the fade, like, this might be better, sort of, like, as far as loss aversion goes, I feel like it's going to be less painful if they know it's, like, you're, you'll probably come back, but you probably won't come back complete, yeah. and they'll just kind of be happy they're alive, perhaps. And if you set a, and if you set that expectation at the very start, you say, this is what happens when you die. Yep. I did do the, that. Put all the cards on the table. Yes. 
I did do that for a Star Wars game, actually. It was the villain game. Oh, yeah. I let them know that, because uh, I, I was kind oh, of expecting yeah. these players to go a little crazy because this was Given the people the dark who were playing campaign. these characters, we love them, they were going to do that. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> it was just a matter of when. I think we managed to get away with only one character dying, but I told them... We should have had to. That <laughs> we probably should have had to. But I, thing, I, yeah. I believe I did warn them ahead of time that, because I kind of expected them to get into a lot of trouble, that I would not have their characters die forever. I would have some weird Dark Force stuff happen, and they would come back with uh, a level missing. Uh, and I also quietly made a note to myself that I would transfer those character levels to the final boss. Oh. That explains a lot. <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm Luckily, putting that in the, in the storage right here. <laughs> Luckily, only one of them actually bit it because they were really, really dead set on getting through this tunnel. But I had crafted this whole you know, plot where they were going to have to go to a hut, and they were going to have to get permission... And they were going to have to do a... Uh, long know, story to, short, he ate it real long, hard. Long story short, he decided <laughs> to use force powers to, like, phase through it. So they just turned the shield off and, like, five guys blasted him. Like, you, you've already blocked, like, three shots. And they've got, like, I've got like eight more coming, man. Was that James? That, that was David, actually. Was, okay, I was going to say, I had a 50% <laughs> chance. James was the one who then took the speeder and tried to drive it into the shield. Yeah, well... And several other people. How did... Okay, you know what? That's a story for another that day. That was a story for another day. But I, I hope that answers your question, Michael. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when in doubt, just, you know, steal the levels from the characters. Give it to the Final boss. big fade boss at the end. Laugh maniacally in your head. I'm all for that plan. <laughs> twirl your mustache. Yes, please. Grow a mustache. Twirl Grow a mustache. Get I your have a mustache. Oh, perfect. Hey, You're ahead of the game. Get your uh, you know. your magister title. That's when you get to twirl the mustache and laugh <laughs> maniacally. It's, uh, you know, Manelvin made Dorian Dorian said so. <laughs> uh, if you out there listening have a question about the Dragon Age RPG, whether it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, or anything else, please send a message to con- to what is the podcast at gmail.com. Send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, or SoundCloud accounts, or send a personal message to Cot the Protector or HealerPuff on the Green Running forums, or send a message to Cot or Lease on the D20 radio forums. That's us. That is us. It's still not me. It's still not you. <laughs> it could be you someday. Mm, no, thanks. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. Fair enough. Hey, you know, that's just how it goes. Let's see. I'm going to do a quick... Double check. We were hoping to get some more guests, uh, some more extra hosts on with us today, but it seems fate is conspiring against uh, at least one of them, and that is okay. We will soldier on. Ink will be all right. Uh, in the meantime, why don't we open our books to the dissonant verses? Do you ever wonder what lies at the edges of the map, past the seas? No. I think we have enough to worry about on this continent. <laughs> of course, but... Welcome to those Dissonant Verses. We've got a couple of quick plugs for the folks who are here at this podcast. Uh, Event registration for Gen Con is live. Uh, I personally am running three games for Dragon Age. As of recording this episode, they are actually all full. But um, if spaces open up, and they're still open up by the time we record a podcast, we will be sure to let you folks know. 
And uh, Andy, I believe you got some games coming. Yeah, um, as it turns out, uh, I was actually sold out. Silver Wings on a Black Wall filled up, but I got contacted by one of the players who had apparently bought a ticket for all three sessions. Oh, whoops. So I uh, not so subtly informed him that, yes, this is in fact the same exact scenario each time. So mysteriously, two seats have opened up, one on Friday at 7 p.m. and one on Sunday at 9 a.m. So if you're interested in seeing on what's going on in Weishaupt, uh, feel free to grab a ticket while they're still available. Nice. Yeah, get one, guys. Get it. Uh, in addition to my Dragon Age games, I have written a Fantasy Age game uh, for my own setting. It's really fun. I am one of the few people in the world who has had the privilege of playing it. It's really cool. Uh, the adventure is called Beyond the North Wall, and I believe the last I checked there were three seats open. And I believe that was on Saturday afternoon. Saturday the... Let's what? see. The, uh, the, 13th. the 13th. No, no, the 12th. Saturday the 12th. Yes, I believe that was correct. This this is a bit ahead of time for yeah. those of you who are not patrons. Mm-hmm. It's true. Anyway, um, you can, of course, find uh, any of our usual submissions uh, archived in our resources for your game uh, page on our blog. One is the thetheatispodcast.wordpress.com. And, of course, if you'd like to share your or someone else's custom Dragon Age RPG content, with permission, please, Send a message to one of us that is podcast at gmail.com. Send it to us on our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, or SoundCloud account. Send a personal message to Cotter Protector or Hilo Pup on the Green Running forums. Or send a message to Cotter Leaks on the D20 radio forums. That's still us. It hasn't stopped being us. All right. Now, we've got uh, a kinder topic to get to today. I'm very excited to get to this one because I think this one's very, very near and dear to my heart. It is. There are very few puns to be made about this one, and that is its one flaw. <laughs> Shame. Well, we're going to talk about... I guess about... I'll just have to make good with what I have. Oh, man. Well, hey! Today, this, this is, is the... the main topic! Is it fate or chance? I can never decide. Uh, well... Today we're not necessarily talking about specific techniques or mechanics uh, of GMing today. We're going to talk more about some softer stuff, if that makes sense. How to be a good GM. Mm-hmm. How to? Uh, this is more about the etiquette of GMing. And I think that this is a very important discussion to have that is useful for just about any role-playing game that you're running. At, and, of course, perfectly useful for Dragon Age or any other age games that you're running. Uh, we're going to cover the etiquette of good players at a later date, but for today we're going to talk about uh, how to be kind behind that screen. Well, and not only that, but also ways to prepare yes. for being a GM, because there are many things that people do not do when they're trying to get started as a GM. They're rookie mistakes, and then then they uh, have problems for it, and you learn from them, but right. hey, maybe you could just learn them here, and then you don't have to make those mistakes. Exactly. Learn from our mistakes. Uh, there is more to GMing than making adversaries and plotting story arcs. GMing involves tracking down players, nailing down play times, organizing for things like food breaks and pots for pizza money, and it involves being a host. You are a host to a very beloved pastime, and we hope that this humbles you in a way. 
your influ you influence how well this night is going to go, how well the heroes succeed, how hard they fall, what they gain or lose along the way. There is much more than just a player character on a piece of paper. Uh, someone made that character, and they are here to play a game with their friends and be part of a story that you and your friends will write as they go. This hobby allows for a unique challenge and excitement of a combination of strategy gaming, improv, and finding where the two meet each other in the middle. Mm -hmm. This is a big responsibility, and it should not be taken lightly. I mean, don't get me wrong, casual gaming is a thing. Like, Absolutely. And should be completely recognized as a legitimate form of play, but... Being fully aware of what you need to do is very important. Yes. As a game master, you know, there's there comes different connotations. There yeah. comes different uh, responsibilities. We are all here to have fun, of course. Absolutely. Everyone should be having fun. There is, however, a social contract to role-playing games that needs to be addressed uh, and laid out for your players to read. Like, you don't actually have to write one, though, but if you like, do, we'd love to see you it. You don't have that to physically cool. write things down. Just be aware. Be aware of what you expect and what they expect. One of the resources that we have a little further down the show notes that I dropped in uh, actually really helps with this, and I'll, I'll call that out when we get to it, but it really helps bring about that uh, that social contract dynamic. Mm -hmm. I think I, I looked at it, and I like it. I'm excited to talk about it. We'll call it well, I think we've got, the, got it up on a window right now. We're going to talk about it a little later. Coming attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, these next few nuggets of advice are not introduced in any particular order, but we hope that you take them for what they are, which is suggestions from folks who've played a few games between you all You know, of us. a couple, give or take. <laughs> and, of course, uh, an ever-important disclaimer, this is your group, and you should know it better than anyone. Some of these aren't going to work for everyone, but the ones that do, we hope that they serve you well. Mm-hmm. So first we're going to cover a couple of the, let's see, the GMing styles that are mentioned in the core rulebook. We're going to add a bit more nuance to them and mention some pitfalls and some good things that can come out of them. Uh, they are worth bringing up and extrapolating on. Uh, the first one is adversarial GMing. And I want to put in a point about what we mean by adversarial. Yes. It's when I think adversarial is generally sort of the idea is not so much a GM that acts as adversary, but a GM who wants to see the players fail, who wants to defeat the players on some level. Seems to be what the book was talking about when they were talking about an adversarial GM, one mm -hmm. who is looking forward to beating the players and then doing a little victory dance on their character sheets. Like, You've had a couple GMs like that, especially in organized place in it. Yeah, that's not, that's not my personal favorite. Had uh, one GM at a big special that we went to for Pathfinder who, uh, who warned us at the beginning of the game that uh, if I kill one of you guys, I might do a little dance. And I was like, oh, joy. Great. Right. We found the good one. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, this is this is why this gets vilified by the community, yes. and I'll, I'll offer my my rebuttal yes. here at the end. But uh, but yeah, it when you whenever you take that sort of um, that sort of challenge relationship and make that between between the players themselves instead of the characters and the game, yes. mm -hmm. you're gonna end up with some problems. It's absolutely. Mm -hmm. Nothing can kill the fun of a multiplayer game quicker than seeing people who are clearly putting far more stock into quote-unquote winning the game than they really should. Uh, this all usually stems from some toxic behaviors, although we don't need to get into all of them today. There's too many to mention, and, you know, yeah. we're, we're, here, we're here to have some fun. Uh, 
If you let's see, but even if you get by and, and the players are okay with it, it is not unlikely that the players are excited to try and beat this GM. Well, and here's a major like here are a couple major issues with that. Mm-hmm. One is that unless like unless you're being mitigated in some way by like an organized play or a free written module or something, mm-hmm. there is a and even then, but especially without that, there's a major power imbalance in that if you don't want the players to win there's no chance for them to win. Like, if your goal is to crush them and you are the sole person running the game, you there is no chance for them. They're, like, in the end, it's not even a rivalry. So, yeah. in the end, usually in these cases, in the, in the ones we're talking about where specifically, like, players versus GM, not characters versus enemies, somebody's got to lose, and neither side compromises is kind of the, like, either somebody loses and everybody gets mad, or everybody ends up in a stalemate and walks away mad, or, you know, all of this stuff sounds like a really great way to hurt some feelings and injure some real friendships in real life. That would not be super great, so be careful with this one, guys. Definitely. Now, I'm going to rebut here, because believe it or not, I actually consider myself primarily an adversarial GM. Okay. Uh, I'm the sort of person that... I believe I've said it on this podcast before that at the heart of the story, there has to be conflict. There Mm -hmm. has to be some, there has to be tension there. Now that tension has to be within that golden circle of the game, because you as the GM gloating over your players, as you know, they whiff on that attack once more for the 15th time that combat, Mm -hmm. that's not going to breed anything more than bad sentiment on their part, and it's going to make you, honestly, look kind of like a douchebag. Yeah. Just kind of. For for me, being an adversarial GM, being a good adversarial GM, means, and I love this word, ardor. That means that if you're going to use adversarial GMing techniques, that you're doing things that push on on your characters, on the characters at the table. You're going to push on their strengths, their weaknesses, their character foibles. You are going to provide them challenge. Yes. On a continual basis. And you may not let up on that. Uh, it may be a continued campaign-long thing. But the idea being that when they finally triumph, and it's not if, it's when, that that triumph is going to be all the sweeter. I mentioned earlier the idea of killing characters as as way too much bookkeeping. There are so many other ways you can engage with your player and with their character within the world that do not involve, you know, crumpling up the character sheet and rolling some more d6s to start again. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I have heard it said that um, some people like like character death as a storytelling mechanic. I've never, uh, but I've I've never really seen it done well. I think I've I've seen it. I've seen it happen. It can be done well. Mm-hmm. Usually, when I've seen it done well, though, it is a planned death or disappearance from the game. Like exactly, the GM and the char- and the player have worked together to be like, I think this character should die in this scenario. Like, mm-hmm. and I've had one or two. We've we've seen. Uh, we had one pretty good one where uh, 
you know, Mike's character with the chainsaw and then, Oh god. Yeah, yep. and there were three then there were three pieces of him instead of the one whole living one and it was a bad day, but we came back and avenged him. And really a really cool. big epic fight and it was pretty cool. Yeah. And and there are ways to make that to make that a really awesome story and that's the sort of thing that your players will remember but again you've got to have that buy-in and you have to have that conversation like hey let's craft this as a dramatic moment yeah and if you're acting like you know that if you're crowing over the fact that someone just died and you killed them i have never seen that work out well like i've been no. playing these games for all going on 20 years and i have never seen that go well no not at all i think the key um, is like your guy like the ardor is super important to character development it's that you know you want to challenge the the characters you don't necessarily want to challenge the players except like in thinking creatively and things like that but you're trying to put that conflict within the characters and i think oftentimes if you work with the players to really make those characters miserable, that can be a really, really effective way to run a game. Mm -hmm. uh, going along with that, you know, part of thinking as, an adver as a good adversarial GM is to take the core villains of your game, and you need a good, solid core villain, oh, yeah. as an, and taking them as an intelligent, but not an infallible opponent. Uh, something like Corypheus or the Architect. These are supremely intelligent beings. They're smart. They mm -hmm. absolutely have flaws and blind spots, but they have resources at their disposal. They have fanatics devoted to their cause, and they have logic on their side. So, not saying that, you know, in the middle of your you know, third level dungeon crawl, your 18th level villain should show up and squash the heroes while, uh, while they're picking up that first artifact that they need or what have you. Mm -hmm. But rather, uh, but rather providing that continual challenge as, as they, as the players show up on that, on that villain's radar more and more mm -hmm. that they're going to not just sit idle and wait for, wait for the heroes to come to them, but they're going to be proactive. Mm -hmm. I, I stand by the fact that in Dragon Age Inquisition, probably the climax of the whole game happens very early at the destruction of Haven. Sorry, spoilers for a four-year-old game, guys. <laughs> um, you know, once Dragon but... Age Four comes out, will you know, the spoiler tags come off, and you know, Dragon Age's Inquisition is fair game by this point. <laughs> but the. But when, when that's destroyed, that gives you a huge motivation. You you learn, you talk to your main villain. Oh, yeah. You learn exactly what's driving him. He's cut your legs out from under you, so to speak. So you, now it's rebuild my whole support network. Mm -hmm. The feeling of getting a win over that opponent. And even if they're incremental wins, mm -hmm. it's, you know, oh, well, we thwarted him over here, and we, you know, our troops took out his, his scouts over here, and then we finally reached that big climax. That's the kind of thing that's going to make a good, a great climax to an adversarial-style game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so there's my rebuttal. Yeah, I, like I think that, honestly, what you're calling adversarial and what the definition was in the book are probably two completely different styles. Which is a good thing. This, yeah, this is true. Um, Adjacent. I, I've but... seen it in a number of different uh, in a number of different 
venues. Uh, I've actually, in amongst all my other projects, I've been working on and off on a series of essays about what I'm calling advanced game mastery. And one of them is a you know, 25-ish to 30-page defense Ooh. of adversarial game mastery. Ooh. Dang. So, so. I hope I get to read these someday. Uh, I'll finish <laughs> them at some point. I, I, the primary essay of the piece is what I'm calling the pendulum method, which is a way of structuring non-standard, uh, non-standard plots. So if you want to use things like time travel or uh. if, if you've ever seen like Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch where you have very disparate stories going on at the same time. Mm. So it's, it, it kind of goes into how to do that within a role-playing game. Okay. Cool. Uh, I have another one that goes into using educational theory at the table. So. Hmm. I would like to subscribe but, to this publication. <laughs> in my spare time, brother. In my spare time. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, it, it, it will, let's see, we'll, we'll read it when it's well and done. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. The next style of GMing that they mention in the book is the what sounds like the opposite is the benevolent GM. Mm-hmm. And, and while it can sound nice on the surface, and it does have some good qualities for sure, this can also mean the GM who takes absolutely no control of the game, uh, allowing the players to do whatever they want whenever they want. You know, the player wants to make like I don't know half demon half vampire half minotaur or something and the gm's like yeah sure why not it should be it could be fun i don't want to disappoint my friends that is 150 percent too much that was one crazy night in tantrum <laughs> that, that day <laughs> Woo! you know it's you know, that that's 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 the way to go and uh you know it's only going to get crazier when we finally get to wycombe <laughs> Well, like, yeah, the primary issue with this one is kind of obvious. Like, it is. You get, you don't give any guidance or sort of rules for mm-hmm. the players, and you don't provide them with a whole lot of story or plot hooks, and they will just kind of wander around and get weirder and weirder. Mm-hmm. And that really, you know, and oftentimes things can just flounder. Like, they won't know where to go or what to do, so they won't do anything. They'll wonder if the GM has something in mind, and if the GM doesn't, then they'll wonder, you know, well, what are we doing? I've seen this crash and burn a number of times. Mm. One of my one of my good friends is this sort of game master, and nothing against him. He, he, he can run a good game, but the issue that he runs into is that he, there aren't enough finite rules and plot hooks within his games to really yeah. engage the players mm-hmm. at the start, so they just kind of drift everywhere. Okay. Yeah, I think this is a common gets... problem with sandbox-style games. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Not had a lot of campaigns like this, but we're 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 getting into a couple that could stand for. Uh, I think we have you know very kind GMs, and they want us oh, to yeah. know, have the adventure that we want. And they're have. very they're very good at telling stories. So yes, absolutely. Uh, sandbox but campaigns. But I could see this being a thing that could happen. Yes, some structure helps. Uh, letting the players do whatever they want can sometimes even cause a bit of animosity as the players are arguing over what they over because they all know what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But there's but there's four players and they all want to do something else and the GM's yeah. not picking one. It's very hard to give them a common drive. If you don't give the players a common drive, then there's a good chance that their individual character motivations are not going to match up. 
Yes. And so you'll end up with everybody sort of sitting there together wanting to go in different directions. Mm -hmm. Especially if they don't, if they're not watching character creation very closely and they just let the players create whatever they want, but then all these characters end up so different that they don't mesh or they don't have, you know, a common purpose. So then, of course, then then they start wondering, you know, why are we still together? Yeah, why are we hanging out? Mm Mm-hmm. So this is, of course, that is the worst side of being a benevolent GM. Benevolent can also just mean, you know, that they don't want them. It could also mean that they just, they want to take care of the players, and that can be good. You know, I, it's, it's, it requires an important kind of balance with being uh, the more adversarial GM. There's got to be challenge, but you've also, you know, this is their Saturday night. You, you've got to give them a good time. And, you know, the Benevolent GM wants them to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side of things, you have the Director GM, where it's like... <laughs> I think one of my favorite things to describe this is that one uh, post I saw on Facebook once, mm-hmm. where someone posted two sort of comments, and the first one was, I want to run a D&D campaign, but only I write it, and I'm the GM, and I'm all the players. And the next post was, I've been told this is called writing a novel. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. Yeah. If the the role-playing arena is this weird hybrid in a lot of ways between between writing fiction and mm-hmm. that improvisational acting. Mm-hmm. So and if you're not prepared to embrace that improvisational acting, you probably shouldn't be GMing. No. Yeah. Go write the book you want to write. Yep, go write your book. <sighs> one of my one of my favorite stories in this regard. Oh, I was running a fourth edition D and D game at one point, The Tears of Iun by Robert Schwab. Um, it ended up becoming a year and a half campaign for our uh, for our table, uh, turned into something really cool. Within that game, you're traveling to the town uh, from the town of Wellspring to this tower that's been corrupted. Mm-hmm. The our, my players, you know, encountered some barbarians along the road. Mm-hmm. And within the context of the adventure, it was basically the barbarians guard the road effectively for the town. If you engage them, you know, socially and you're not duplicitous at all, mm-hmm. they give you directions and they give you information. All right. So what do my players do? Mm-hmm. Bluff, attack, and then try to run away. <sighs> Mm. end up getting arrested by the town officials because you know they've effectively attacked their town guards you know giant snafu and that totally shifted the entire realm of the campaign yeah, from being these this town's saviors to outright pariahs oh man these things happen if you're if you're not willing to roll with that sort of punch you maybe want to consider writing a novel instead Yes. Very true. You've got to be able to handle the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, collaborative storytelling comes with some perils. And, it does. Uh, mm-hmm. Be ready. It'll happen. It will happen. Uh, the ideal GMing style is going to blend all three of these, and there are more styles of GMing that are a bit more nuanced. Those are kind of like three really big uh, umbrellas. Um, but you know, some game groups are going to require some game groups or games themselves or individual players may require that the pendulum swings a certain way, or and maybe when you come to the next player slash group slash game, you have to swing the pendulum in a completely different direction. But again, this is your table with the players that you've scouted, 
you, know, you know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, this next oh, one. The one, piece, All right. the one piece of advice I might mm-hmm. add to that is if you're going to run games at conventions, if you are going mm-hmm. to sit down with a table of strangers who you don't know, err away from adversarial style GM. Oh, oh for away sure. Yes. From from being an antagonist, unless your game is explicitly us, me versus you. There are a couple. You need to you need to cut a little more slack Definitely. because these are people that you do not have a social contract with. These are people that, in all likelihood, you've never met before and will never see again. Yes. So be very careful. Fair enough. All right. This next bit uh, will make it a little technical. Just follow along with us. It is talking about uh, yes and no but. Uh, in literature, sometimes it is good. There's a little tool that some writers like to use to create conflict and drama by asking a question about whether a character gets what they want in a scene. You may answer yes, which means they just succeed. They get what they want. Uh, you may answer yes, but to make the success cost something. You may answer no and to make the scene not only about how the character fails to get what they're after, but how the scene gets worse. Um, you may answer no, but to indicate that while the character did not succeed at what they were originally trying to do, something still happens because of their efforts. Uh, yes, but and no and, those two are really not great for RPGs in most cases unless you have a very mature group of players. If you want to see some good examples of how those two specifically are used in other role-playing games and how you might use those in, in Dragon Age or Fantasy Age, mm-hmm. check out Fate, uh, pretty ubiquitous at this point, yeah. Blades in the Dark by John Harper, and the new Sentinel Comics RPG from Greater Than Games. Mm. All of those use different things, like uh, Sentinel Comics uses twists uh, based on how you succeed and to what degree. Uh, consequences and Blades in the Dark has a neat thing called the Devil's Bargain, which uh, mm. uh, provides a really neat uh, dice mechanic with which to engage people to get this sort of uh, this sort of result. Gotcha. Ooh. Um, GMs and role playing games should probably focus a bit more on just yes to keep the game moving and no but, uh, which can also keep the game moving and help failure not feel quite so destructive or halting of the game, of the story or the, or the adventure, because the story must go on, you know? We've still got more stuff to do, and if failure just means that the story comes to a halt, then folks are going to get bored and folks are going to get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Maybe even though the heroes failed, uh, maybe a high dragon die result indicates a small opportunity that has arisen from the attempt. Uh, can I jump across the ravine? No, but there's a dead tree you could probably push over with a good strength might test. I think I played that adventure already. <laughs> That's a good one. Yep. Uh, let's see. So these next couple we're going to do a bit rapid fire, and they're all solid little things. Uh, know your players. Uh, there's a list of play styles in the rulebook for the age games, and their presence in most every game. There's plenty of them. We're not going to go over them now. Maybe some other time. And we're talking about the player etiquette, but mm-hmm. uh, we just want to make sure that everyone knows that all of these styles of play are valid. Mm-hmm. We're all here to have fun. Some of us have fun in different ways, and there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, this can mean that some folks might have their fun inhibited by different styles of play, which means it, it basically boils down to be careful who you're mixing in your groups. Don't mix munchkins and storytellers. No, like, they're just they're just not going to have. They're going to have fun. Yeah, they're both types are extremely valid, 
but uh, they, uh, sorry, both types are extremely valid, but they, um, oh, did we get them back? I think I am back. Welcome back. Hello. We lost them for a second. Yeah. Um, sorry, it's been storming here, so gotcha. uh, things have been in or out. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. Basically, the uh, don't put them together. Just don't do it. Both yes. are valid. Mm -hmm. They don't mix well. Mm -hmm. It's like peanut butter and toothpaste. Ew. I mean, Ew. more like That's... peanut butter and something that doesn't go with peanut butter, but is also edible. Um, yeah. Nailed Avocado? it. Avocado? Avocado. Gah. Wow. That's a terrible huh. combination. I would try that. You would try anything. <laughs> yes. Except raw apples. Definitely not. Anyway. Uh, reward creativity. Andy, you want to go with this one? Well, the big thing, uh, the big thing here is that if your player oh. is engaging with you, if they are there? moving, yep, I'm here. Uh oh. If your player is, we good? We oh, not there? Good? You yes. are. I heard you. Okay, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. There you are. Uh, if your player is taking the effort to engage with your world, if your if your player is taking the effort to find a way to try to do something. It's your duty as a GM to engage with them actively and try to come up with something that contributes that they're happy with and that adds to the story that you're trying to tell. Um, even if that means that, you know, oh, I've spent hours designing this encounter and they totally just bypassed it, use those stats somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. Just because just because they, you're not using them in that exact situation doesn't mean that that work has gone to waste mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Or alternatively, if you're going to use that same encounter, give them a big old bonus to to succeeding against it because yes. they because they outthought you. If you're going to be an adversarial GM, if you're gonna if you want to be like me for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you got to know when you're licked. <laughs> Sometimes they win, and that's okay. The director GMs will not handle this very well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now, one of the one of the best pieces of advice uh, comes from one of one of my other favorite podcasts, uh, the guys at the RPG Academy. If you're having fun, you're doing it right. Absolutely. Yep. Rule zero. Mm -hmm. If it's fun, forget the rules. You're doing it absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Nice little quick one, but that one's that, that one's that one's, important. that is a golden rule. Um, Next one is listen to your players. You'd be surprised just how often some players feel like they aren't part of a table. Uh, uh, this one, I can speak to this one from a great deal of personal experience. Unfortunately, this is a constant reality for female-identified and minority players who end up being ignored. It happens everywhere. It just In Western society, it is... Unfortunately, the truth that everyone, including people with female voices, are more likely to ignore other female voices and talk over them. It just happens. It's not done intentionally. Like, almost never has it been done intentionally to me, but it has. It does still happen, even with some of my best friends. Like, it's, and I've, I'm sure I've done it to other people. Like, it's a thing that happens. Just be aware. That is the thing that, if you want to make sure that your whole table is comfortable and feels safe and and present and feels valued just just keep an eye on it preach 
one way that uh, one way that I've found, especially convention games, to get around this is to when when actions going down, it doesn't even necessarily have to be combat. To literally just go around the table and give everyone their shot. Mm-hmm. What, what is this character doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Are you going with this person? Or are you going with this person? Uh, that way, each of them is having their voice heard. That's a good individually. Idea. I think that's a really good way to do it. Yes, absolutely. And it and it. And it comes off as as very impartial when you're when you're in that setting because again, if you're running at a convention, you don't have that social contract. When you're at your home table, yeah, you're with your friends. You know who's quieter. You know who's who's louder. Mm-hmm. But when you're only with someone for four hours, you don't know that in the first hour. Right. Exactly. So please make sure that you watch for it. And if you see something going down at the table that seems a little wiggy. That or, seems yeah. like erasing somebody. Then do something. Do something about it. Yeah, like there, you know, and there's you don't have to, if unless there's something really terrible going on, you don't have to get aggressive about it. But like, there's a difference between calling someone out aggressively and giving them a friendly reminder, like, hey, uh, they were talking, or hey, she she already said that. Like, just to remind, like, I think that calling someone out aggressively is probably a last resort and is reserved for when something obviously not cool is going on but there's nothing wrong with reminding people like hey this this person was talking can let's let's listen to them first and then i want to hear what you have to say just you know be ready to call that out in a respectful and sort of casual way yes mm-hmm. i've heard some pretty slimy stories about the role-playing game hobby and it's i have some stories that would Make your hair curl. It's not great. And, unfor- it happen. and unfortunately, that goes all the way up to the design and publishing circles as well. Oh, there, are, uh, there are a number of issues. So let's maybe think about making our space accessible for people. Yes. And not a, pla- not a place where we're surrounded by bad neckbeard stereotypes. Yes. And almost never is that been the case for me, but the few times that it has have been rough. <laughs> like, yeah, no doubt. From even from as early as young as fourteen, like I had some really inappropriate experiences, and I think being a G, as the GM, you are the person with the power to stop those things. And if you're not using it, then you're letting some players down. I think about specifically uh, an occasion where. I want to say a high, late high school age kid tried to mansplain Batman to my wife. Oh, oh God. I'm like, I'm like, do you know who you're talking to, child? She knows more about Batman than I do. Yeah. Every time I tell a group of people that I'm a huge Sonic fan, I'll get the, oh, yeah, well, what about blah, 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 blah. When was this? At? It's like, actually, you're incorrect. That happened in this, that, you know. like, <laughs> Don't I'll, come for her. Don't come for me. I'll take you down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So. On to maybe some happier times. Yes, right. unfortunately, yeah, I, like, we were supposed to start this a bit earlier, but then some of us got injured, and some, it sort of set the time a back a little bit. A lethal blow but um, I have made a commitment to a very dear friend, and the time has come for me to honor that commitment, so I am very sad that I'm going to miss the rest of this conversation, but I have great faith that you two will be able to carry it most honorably. Thank you. At the very least, you'll be able to listen to it later. Yeah, see? Actually, a surprise <laughs> for me. But uh, just real, you know, just in case, because I won't get to do my outro mm-hmm. later. 
Uh, good heels, happy heels, everybody. I will talk to you next time. Enjoy your uh, enjoy your podcast about GMing. Adventures. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye-bye, dear. Bye. Bye, guys. Have fun playing your nerd games. Play my nerd games with my <laughs> super special friendo. Super special like nerdo friendo. 17 years, yeah. <laughs> All right. Quick, she's gone. Let's talk about her behind her back. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Take you out. I know you will. I take you out. I believe it. I do it. Have a good one. Okay, bye. All right. <laughs> Marital bliss. Marital bliss indeed, for sure. All right. Now, uh, when we, of course, when we say listen to your players, there are a couple of other ways that you can listen that are, you know... Uh, less about making sure that everybody feels safe at your table, which you should absolutely do as well. But yes, in... once once priority one is taken yes. care of, we can listen to a couple other things. Yes, um, we uh, we do mean uh, take notice. You know, one of the things that Jessica really likes, and uh, a couple of my other players really appreciate, and some GMs that my local Pathfinder Society th- uh, group like to do is we take what the PCs put down and we pick them up and run with them. We'll have like particular, uh, and then and GMs will latch onto things that the players give uh, as far as like uh, race or the character's background or the class or the gear that they're carrying, um, and they and see they take these things that the players are giving them, and of course you know things like goals and uh, plot hooks that the players have already handed to the GMs, but make use of them because it makes the players feel like they're really part of all this, that the world is taking notice of them. Uh, that they're contributing to the adventure, even if they're not reducing health values to zero. Um, I, for example, in one of our Pathfinder adventures, I was playing an Asimar character, uh, an angel-blooded, and I had taken things like uh, angelic wings and uh, angelic flesh, which made my skin hard, my skin turn to steel, and then my wings turned to steel, and I had this glittering plate armor, so my GM made sure that everybody on that boat that we were that we were taking was staring at me, and I got and I got the nickname Angel for the rest of the adventure. Yeah, probably the best thing that you can do for for any sort of extended campaign mm-hmm. is once you've had your session zero, which we'll talk about in a moment, yes. Uh, once you've had that session zero, take up those character sheets for for the one week or the two weeks or however long. Or if you're playing digitally, you can have a copy of it right in front of you at the same time. And really take a take five ten minutes and look very specifically at that character. What are they trying to tell you through what they've chosen? What are they prioritizing? What are their relative strengths and weaknesses? What are they good at? What do they want to do with this character? They're literally writing that up for you. Their wish list is their character sheet. Mm-hmm. So that's a roadmap for the remainder of your campaign on where that character is going to go. Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be detours, but <laughs> there will definitely that's a, be that's detours. a pretty solid path. Um, we've got, of course got an earlier episode uh, if you'd like to hear a little bit more about how you can use the character sheet to tell you about how uh, to inform you about how to use your characters we've got an old episode about goals maybe you should go check that one out we talk about how goals like uh, I mean goals are the most literal sense a wish list for you as the GM 
they tell you what the character wants, and you can even look at how the goals like interact with each other uh, to determine like exactly like the order of importance of these things that this character wants, and that is extremely useful for a GM. Yep. Within Cold Steel Wardens, we have we have motivations, and it's exactly that. What are you trying to do right now? What are, what are these characters major? Why do they get out of bed in the morning? Oh goodness, this is an old episode. Yeah, we talked about this way in episode nine. So mm-hmm. uh, way and take a way back machine, real far back. So uh, now, of course, you know, Dragon Age and other Age games have goals, ties. Uh, if you're playing Blue Rose, you've got uh, calling and your destiny and your fate. Uh, Modern Age, I think, has something called Drive. Haven't looked at it too closely, but it sounds, uh, but you know, it sounds actually, a little bit like what you are already doing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, pick up what the players are putting down. They're handing it to you, so I say make some good use of it, and they will definitely thank you for it. Yeah. And the place where you start that's going to be your session zero, which always, always in anything outside of a convention game, yes, absolute. Take a session where you're sitting down with your players, where you as a group are developing this campaign, where. You, where your characters can talk out what kind, what kind of heroes are going to be good in this sort of adventure. What kind, um, one thing I tend to think about it in terms of the Dragon Age world. Origins, Dragon Age 2, Inquisition are, all, are three very different tonal games. You know, or, Origins is very much kind of that uh, very classic unite the clans against this this nameless faceless horde. Mm-hmm. You know, DA two obviously is it's a character drama set almost entirely in one city, whereas Inquisition is for all intents and purposes a military campaign. The same type of heroes could not fit in all three of those. And in fact, I think that's where Varric comes in as such an important character in 2 and, and Inquisition, because he's so out of water in a military setting. For sure. He's not the sort of person that's going to put on armor and go, you know, go marching for Andraste. When you're sitting down at your session zero, this is something that you as a group can hash out. Not just not just in terms of role-playing, but also in terms of mechanics. Hey, we need to have a healer. We need to have someone who's going to throw down some uh, some damage. We need an infiltration expert. We need a beat shield. We need X, Y, and Z. These are the sort of things that that session zero is good for. Absolutely. <clears throat> you can you can plot out everything. You might even you know you can also talk about important things like what's the genre of this adventure going to be, mm-hmm. and uh, and also it's very good to use very specific examples when you're talking about genre because if you say you could. Like if you're playing Fantasy Age and you say uh, that they want to play like, uh, med- like a what is it, high high fantasy or like a medieval fantasy, uh, things like Final Fantasy and goodness what and like The Witcher, are both mm-hmm. you know medieval fantasy. But you might have two players who are thinking when when you say like um, medieval high fantasy, one of them thinks Final Fantasy, one of them thinks The Witcher. Those are not the same thing. So yeah, you'll they're... definitely want to make sure that even within the genre, you're kind of also digging into the subgenres to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Yep. Now, 
within the structure of your table, you know, this uh, that session zero is also a hash out. How often are you going to play? What day are you going to play? How long is game going to run? Are you going to play for two hours? Are you going to play for six hours? Are you going to play weekly? Are you going to play monthly? How is that going to work? One thing that I found, and I, I can't take credit for this, uh, a uh, good friend, uh, Kat Ostrander Lee, uh, who was wor- who was working over at Fantasy Flight, um, sent uh, sent me this, um, and it'll be linked in the show notes. I hope. Yes, it will. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Uh, it's called the Same Page Tool, and it's literally a multiple choice test, and it doesn't take more than five or five minutes probably because mm. it's only like ten questions um, to do that shows how you what you enjoy about a game and then when you can compare that to your fellow players shows what uh shows how well does this mesh what does everyone enjoy what does everyone not enjoy what are we split on so take a look at that that's a it's a great tool to use at your at your session zero when you're first structuring your campaign absolutely for sure I did take a look at it and I liked it. I thought it was it was nice and nuanced and it had some, and I liked that they made sure that you you know picked the one that was most important to you because they I thought there were a lot of them there that I was like I, I want to check all of these I like all of these, mm-hmm. but it's it's very good to make sure that everybody knows exactly what you're here for and it's very good for that. Uh, I do kind of wish it came out in a it, it was in a printable form that they like made a printable PDF. But you can just copy and paste it on a Word document. Yep. All right. Um, now, even after you've had a session zero and you've got a couple sessions under the belt, uh, it's always good to check in with the players. Maybe like do a quick survey of how everyone's going. Uh, make sure that the group is a good fit, uh, both in and out of character. Uh, we've mentioned already, you know, uh, mixing some player types can be problematic. So. Once you've got, like, three or four sessions in, you can probably, like, go out and have dinner with one or two of the players and ask, like, hey, how's the game going? Is there, are you feeling comfortable? Are you having fun? Is there anything we should we should do? Um, uh, because, of course, you're all going to have to come back together, and this is a collaborative storytelling effort. we got to work together on this, so everyone's got to gel. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Everyone's got to have a similar drive and a goal and say, and uh, and similar moral hopefully similar moral compass although that one can stray a little bit especially if folks have the same goal but different ways of going about it um and uh it's no you know going chaotic stupid no rushing in uh, leroy so you screaming leroy jenkins yep. it's, it's right it's you know that's not super helpful and it it, it means you're not gelling yeah. One thing uh, particularly to make note of is it is not necessarily a bad thing for characters at the table to be rivals. Yes. Now, with that, you want to make sure that the players themselves are still having a good time and are not expressing some out-of-game anger or anger generated by the events in-game mm-hmm. out of character. You don't want that to step out of the outer circle. Best way that I've seen to diffuse that is to literally take that fight outside and block it, just like you'd block out a, you know, a fight scene in a theater. So, 
We still there? Nope. I think I lost you. Yep. Okay. I'm uh, back. We here? Yes. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Well, sorry. Storm outside is cutting it in and out. Oh, gotcha. All right. Um, I was saying. But and now uh, to... I think I, I lost a little bit of what you said uh, a second ago. Could you repeat yep. that for me? Yep, sure. Um, the idea here would be that if you're going to have those those two characters that are rivals, mm. to literally take that argument, take that disagreement, and outside of game, feed or block that out with your, your the GM and with the the two the two players there. Whereas they have, they say, okay, well, my character would say this sort of thing, and then my character would retort with. The, uh, with oh well you know I'm gonna insult your dead brother because you failed to save him and now you're Ooh. gonna end up doing the same thing and that way you're not putting anyone on the spot aside from the other players who are effectively spectators to the fight yes. plus it gives you a chance to really up the drama and up the stakes for that rivalry mm. Mm. Uh, that little bit of that little bit of pre-planning can really uh build a great story but also keep the conflict within the sense of the game and not boiling over outside between the players gotcha i like it i hadn't considered that but i i mean i guess we kind of already do that we don't have really have rival characters in some of my games uh, especially for this campaign setting that i'm writing we're creating demigods who used to be uh who were actually based on player characters from my old monstrous mythic Pathfinder campaign that ran for like three something years, it was it was pretty crazy. But we've got a couple of the but we're, we're standing a couple of demigods out, and sometimes uh, folks who played them will just continue to roleplay them even after it's been like mm. three years. Like by now, it's been like three years since the campaign ended, and we're still going for it. It's great. Um, one thing I, w I would add to this is, especially for your campaign-length games, your players should generally be able to get along with each other. Mm -hmm. Don't game with someone you wouldn't want to go to dinner and a movie with. Don't game with someone that you would not want to spend an afternoon walking around a festival with. There are countless other gamers out there. If this is someone that that you you can't get along with or is causing an active disruption at your table don't stand for it right either say something and solve the problem or remove the problem yes absolutely that, that's that's your job as a gm it's just gonna suck the fun out of everything and mm -hmm. that's not good for anybody and probably not not even not even the offending player so it is best that you just cut the ties there, and you know maybe you can still be friends outside of the game, and especially if we're getting if we if you notice it early and get them separated quickly so that no one's feelings get hurt, and then you can't go back and take back what you said. All right. Looks like we've already touched on a couple of these. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes. In terms of you know what what players want out of the game and the idea of what dark fantasy actually means. Yes. Especially for Dragon Age, you're probably going to want to yeah. hash that out too. And you know, especially if you're if you're going to like a convention game where you have a couple folks who've neither played the role playing game or played the video games, but they've heard their friends hyping about it, so they want to give it a try and see what it looks like. Uh, you'll it, it might not be a bad idea to lay some groundwork, letting folks know what kind of dark fantasy Dragon Age is specifically, because Dragon Age has a, a kind of a specific flavor. 
mm-hmm. but at uh, and then but then something like you know Game of Thrones is a bit is just a tad grittier than Dragon Age is. Yeah, least, I think that's fair. I th- at least I think so. Yeah. So you know, make sure the expectations are understood and that everybody's being heard and that everybody's being understood. Mm-hmm. Kind of a. Um... One that should go without saying, but uh, but can sometimes be overlooked. Have a clean and inviting game space. Absolutely, this if you're this can go if a long you're, way. yeah, if you're at a store or another public space, this might not be in your purview. But if you're playing at home, you know, Spruce make up. the place comfortable to your guests. Yes, I mean you are a host if nothing else. So, you know. This this includes things like not just you know have enough chairs and tables uh, or and table space and the like, but make sure you take out the cat box. You know, make sure there's nothing you know untoward sitting out on the uh, sitting out on the counter. Mm-hmm. Make you're having you're having your friends over. You're having you're having guests in your home. Treat it that way. Yes, absolutely. A lot of clutter or unpleasant smells or strange noises can just take, they just take away from the game and they can be distracting, especially if folks are trying to like get into a good uh, role, into a good role play, but they just cannot get over whatever that is that what might have gotten smoked in the next room and you left the door open. Yep. You know, little things like that. Um, Yep. And uh, I think one of the last things we're going to cover is the uh, one of my favorite things that I've always read in the uh, game mastering, the art of game mastering in Dragon Age core book and the, in the Fantasy Age book and the Blue Rose book are the GMing do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. They reprint these in every iteration of Age. In Dragon Age, it's page 210. Fantasy Age basic rulebook, page 95. Blue Rose main book is 282 to 283. Because these are rules to live by, uh, and a lot of them cover a lot of the things that we've already said. And uh, we'll see, you know, we're not going to go over them. There's, there, you can, you can, of course, read them for yourself. Page two ten again for folks with right. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but we would add, uh, add like, like these three, uh, and these a couple of these do go back to the things that we talked about. But you know, they're worth they're worth adding to the list. Uh, do get buy-in. Uh, make sure that the players know what kind of game they're getting into and that they can trust you. Uh, mm-hmm. This can be very easily overlooked or forgotten, uh, but it can save you uh, trouble for many sessions by letting you and your players know that the game, what the game is about, what kinds of characters are appropriate, what kinds of scenes the players are going to get ready to roleplay. Make sure that no effort is wasted, that no one comes in, you know, five sessions, decides they don't like the game and they just want to leave. Uh, tell the players everything that you want to do with the game. Tell them how much you want to like stretch cannon. Uh, tell them how much you're okay with bending the rules. How much it's gonna, uh, how much, how far you know things are gonna swing t- between combat exploration and roleplay scenes. Get get the player buy-in. Let them know what you're about, what you want. Know, uh, learn, hear what they want, and make it work. And this is your session zero. Yes, effectively. Session zero. This is where you. This is where you bring up what type of campaign are we going to run. So, um, I think about the uh, the scenic Dunsmith game that mm-hmm. I ran. Not everybody is on board with a with that sort of body horror and mm-hmm. the like that ended up in that game. But again, 
I was up front at the within the Wittenberg Role Playing Guild. We mm-hmm. always have the first guild, first true guild meeting of the year. We have campaign recruitment, right. so to speak, where you where we give a pitch. And I flat out said, I said, this is going to be inspired by this section of this game. That it, it's gonna be, it's gonna be the thing. It's gonna be Event Horizon. It's gonna be, uh, it's gonna. There's gonna be some, you know, nasty elements to it. So if you're not prepared for that, maybe you don't sign up for this game. Very good. I like that. Anyone handle the next one? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, next one. Ask for help. Do ask for help. GMing is a ton of work. It is. And. To wrangle all these people to be a good host, to put together NPCs, to put together stats, it is a lot of work. Ask other people. You know, Green Ronin has a great set of forums. There, I mean, here at Wonders of Thetis, there's a whole list of resources at your disposal. Steal everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no one, no one's going to come for you, you know... <laughs> yelling copyright infringement for the stat block you used twice in your three-year campaign or what right. have you. Um, work with your players to help design villains. You know, one of the one of the best things you can do is have everyone at the table at their session zero come up with someone who hates me. Someone who hates that, that PC. Uh, that way they can show up as, as a villain, even if it's not necessarily like the sort of villain that you strap on the sword and shield and go fight. Maybe it's that noble who uh, who I slighted him by seducing his daughter. So he's going to make my life inconvenient for the re- for as long as I'm in Orlais or what have you. Maybe you just got some bad but, relatives. Exactly. But the key thing here is, don't be embarrassed asking for advice, asking for assistance with stats, asking for uh, asking for help as you're preparing a game. Because nine times out of ten, someone's either created the thing that you need, and it's just a matter of getting it from them to you, mm-hmm. or someone is willing to make the thing that you need because they want it themselves. And they maybe have a little more time than you, or they may, you know, or they maybe have a, you know, a little more uh, in the tank, so to speak. It's true. So ask, ask for help. You know. Oh yeah. Don't go it alone. There are a lot of eager folks on the Green Running forums who are happy to answer questions or share things that they've already made. Or some folks, if you just put a concept on there, they just like sometimes they just vomit forth creations, and it's it's pretty. It, I mean, it's it's a little prettier than that. But it, it it's really it's really crazy that some folks are guilty just, as charged. <laughs> I and I I've definitely done it once or twice myself. Um, and and not necessarily don't even restrict your your intellectual theft to just Dragon Age material oh, yeah. or even just fantasy material. There are a ton of other games that you can port over ideas from. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I, I've taken up as a as a writing exercise over on the Greater Than Games forums because I'm a huge Sentinels of the Multiverse fan. Mm-hmm. I've started uh, with their impending role playing game. I've started writing what I've called the big villains thread. Mm-hmm. That I come up with a new supervillain every day, and I have not missed a day yet. We're here at March or May seventeenth. We still Ooh, there? Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, we're here May 17th. I have not missed a day yet, so I'm sitting on just a hair under 150 unique supervillains sitting on that thread. And yeah, a lot of them probably not suitable for Dragon Age, but hey, you never know. There might be one or two that that you could slot in and that'd be spectacular. File off the serial numbers and you've got your own villain. Awesome. Tell me how it goes. Absolutely. And there are tons of threads and lists and the like out there. You know, just keep your eyes open and don't be afraid to to take uh, someone else's uh, someone else's help. Absolutely, never. Uh, and finally, we're going to add a don't, which is uh, don't skip anyone. And it's a, it's mean don't uh, being skipped for like character arc, plot twists, or not having your voice heard when folks are role playing, or maybe you completely forget just completely forget their initiative. It's something as simple as that. It's never fun. Uh, just you know, be aware of everybody who's at the table. Yeah, and and I will I will not claim to be infallible by any stretch of the imagination. I, I I've made this mistake very recently, uh, actually. I. Last uh, year, I was I've been running um, a playtest for what I'm hoping to be the the first of several plot point campaigns for Cold Steel Wardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of the occult themed one. I called it the Holders of the End, um, which I I had a number of players in my game, uh, including my wife, and I had each of them just give me a very very short background. You know, just one paragraph background. And a friend, a rival, and an enemy. Someone that someone that likes them, someone that, you know, they're kind of, you know, at odds with, and then someone who really dislikes them. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my players took it on herself to write up a ton of information. Gave me well over and above anything I anything I asked for. Nice. Uh, wrote up this whole backstory and it meshed gloriously with the, the plot of the campaign, which involves uh, which involves a being outside of this reality attempting to encroach itself uh, through these be- uh, these servitor beings who basically siphon off people's emotions. Classic. It's, uh, Love it. It's uh, uh, a lot there. So she created this whole organization called the Rite of the Dead, which I was able to t- take almost wholesale and just slot it into my game. Dang. Which was great for me, but some of the other players at a certain point started realizing, wow, we've done a lot with Katarina's character and, you know, her background. When are we getting to mine? Right. And I really had to do a pretty significant course correction about two thirds of the way through the campaign to try to work in some of their other, uh, some of their other elements. My wife's character, in fact, uh, her, her character's rival uh, was a she was playing a kind of John Constantine style sorcerer mm-hmm. uh, character who was involved in a magical accident and one of his former you know mage associates was was in that and turned out to be disabled like like lost the use of his legs oh, because of directly because of her and it turns out that that relationship by healing that relationship. Uh, and trying to make amends with that character, that re- that result resulted in something that saved two or three of the party members at the campaign's climax, because they were able to. Um, I'll spare the details um, mm-hmm. in case someone actually wants to play this once it's in print. But uh, 
but I really had to make a course correction to build, start building in that sort of thing. And gotcha. not just for her, but for several of the other players as well. Oh, man. That's really rough. So don't skip people. Give everyone a good amount of the limelight. Absolutely. For sure. Yep. Um, you know, <sighs> we'll just come back to our bottom line. Let's all just be good. Be good to the players. Give them a good time. That's what we're here for. If you're having fun, you're doing it right. Yes. The rules don't matter if it's fun. I dare say, sir, we have mastered this topic. <laughs> I would say we have. Um, so thanks, everybody, for sticking around with us. This was a nice long one, and I see I used the wrong microphone. Whoops. Well, can't win them all. Um, incidentally, if you like what we do, uh, please consider supporting us on our new Patreon. And you can not only get double votes on later episodes, you can get the show a week early. If we get enough support, we can meet you with a Discord channel, start inviting folks into the show with us, become a weekly show, or even start a new show for other age games. Uh, anything, that's, anything you can contribute is appreciated. You can find the link to our Patreon on our blog and in the post for this show. Uh, I am currently in the works on a few new patron levels for folks who would like to maybe play a game with us twice a month. That could be fun. Hmm. You know. Interesting. I might be... Uh... I, I, tell you, mm -hmm. I tell you what, brother. What? Um, I'm going to make a standing offer here. Okay. Uh, what's your next threshold on the Patreon? Next threshold? Uh, we're actually kind of uh, workshopping the next threshold. But uh, right now we're kind of sitting at... Uh, if folks, if we get to fifty bucks a month, then we will uh, we will actually schedule times to come on to Discord's uh, the, the D Twenty Radio Discord's uh, voice chat and to chat with folks who are on, and we'll awesome. schedule times that we can be made available to just answer questions right there or talk about your campaigns, things like that. Well, I tell you what, um, I'll toss in something for you here. Uh, if we, if you guys can hit seventy five on that. Mm -hmm. I'll write, I'll write your Patreon backers an adventure. Wow. All right. Just straight up for them. Well, dang. How about that? 75? I can add that. I can add that as a threshold. All righty. All right. Well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate it. My pleasure, brother. Yeah. Well, you know, we're having a lot of fun here writing adventures, and, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping to start getting into a bit of an adventure writing business when the uh, content creator for Fantasy Age comes along. Uh, and of course, uh, if you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on our social media. Feel free to leave a comment or a question or even tell us how your Dragon Age games are going. Uh, feel free to comment on our show on SoundCloud, and if you can, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. It helps us out. Uh, so thanks again uh, for listening to the Ones with Ladies podcast. This is Ren wishing lots of sixes on that dragon die. This is Andy keeping the Dread Wolf off your trail. Thank you so much for listening to the Ones with Ladies podcast. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.